from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters this week at the Hilton Hawaiian Village Resort in Waikiki, the scene of Verge, Hawaii. On this week's edition, surfing the speakers and the presentations of this week's conference, catching Hawaii's decarbonization wave, a deep dive into Hawaii's energy market, and in a world with a changing climate, will tourism sink or swim? We're an island of sleep deprivation this week on 350. It's June 15th, 2018. Welcome to the Aloha edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me here in the studio is a flowery dressed Heather Clancy. Hey, Heather. Aloha. Aloha. Uh, what a week. It's always uh, these shows that we do on site at the end of these uh, very intense conferences, day and night until the wee hours, and then again the wee hours in the morning. That's uh, They're always sort of fun, and we're a, a little punchy. So, um, be prepared about that. But um, what did you think of the week? So yes, giddy. <laughs> I'm get a bit giddy. I, the, the week, as always, was overwhelming, inspiring. I always love coming to Hawaii um, because they had this sort of special uh, connection, right, with the culture. And this, for them, the clean energy movement for this state is is more than just a okay, let's switch to clean power, let's get renewable. I mean, it's very, very grounded in how it will help the people, how it will help the communities. And they include those voices as much as possible in the decisions and so forth. And so for me, that's always a, a great grounding of, of how that could be applied back to other places on the mainland, of course. And and when I talk about inspiration, I just, I, I get excited because you know, on the downside of Hawaii, I know it takes long to do, my mother's lived here for 25 years, it takes a long time to get things done. So on the mainland, we get frustrated and impatient about that. Here, it's just part of the way of life, and they keep going and keep going and keep going. So it's an inspirational and and exhausting week for me. Yeah, those are two good words. One of the things that makes this event different from the other events that we do is that this is really place-based. This is really about um, this, these islands and, the, and by extension, the Pacific in general. And um, so, you know, we're, we're, we have uh, guests here from uh, the mainland and from Asia as well, but the bulk from the islands. Um, and it's, it's just interesting to really focus on uh, a place, first of all, but a place that is truly a leader. I don't think Hawaii gets the love in the other 49 states that it deserves in terms of its clean energy and climate change leadership. California is usually the one named and, uh, and for obvious reasons, and it's also the biggest state by far. But there's a lot going on here. It's really interesting. And as we've talked about in, in the newsletter from the, the carbon neutral pledge, the 100% renewable energy pledge, all the mechanisms that have gone into place to uh, to facilitate those pledges, the one on clean fuels and transportation, another one around incorporating sea level rise projections in buildings. I mean, it's just, it's pretty amazing the kinds of things that if uh, even a handful of other states did, we would start to really create, uh, move the ball rolling much faster. One of the things that really struck me this week was um, Commissioner uh, David Hochschild. He mentioned uh, that California Energy Commission. Yes, California Energy Commission mentioned that Hawaii was very much on his radar. They, he watches the state very closely. He said no state is too small to try new things, to make mistakes maybe, but to try. And he's very focused on what he can learn from the state. And he it was highly encouraging of, of others to, to look here. I mean, we hear a lot about California in my area of the world, New York, of course, but um, I was, that was refreshing to hear that, that someone from a state that's done so many amazing things was recognizing that. I think that I think maybe that will help turn the tide, if you will. And I heard some interesting comments, kinds of things I hadn't heard before about getting the support in, uh, in the territory about the kinds of leadership initiatives that these um, that utilities want to take because they don't always work. And so we heard this several times on stages that, look, if we try something and it doesn't work, do us a favor and write a letter to the editor and say, thank you, that was good that you tried. 
because it's the, you know, nobody likes failure, but when you can see failure as part of a, a step on the way towards, towards innovation and progress, it's a different context and it gives obviously the utilities more political license and social license to operate to do, take those kinds of risks. Now, other thing I'll mention is one of the themes here by design was resilience, how this transition helps with a, uh, making an economy more resilient, with making a community more resilient, the grid more resilient. And so there were a number of sessions, many of the ones that you handled, Joel, on the main stage that were focused on that topic, but it kept bubbling up in other sessions, you know, on the, uh, the one that I did on electrification of everything, it, it turned up, well, that helps there too. It just, it makes things um, uh, much more um, predictable. We will have a segment um, specifically on that topic a little bit later in the podcast, but I wanted to, to mention that. I also um, am going to be sort of pulling together some themes for story and, and probably another segment as well on that topic, because it, it's something that, other places can learn. I mean, cl clearly an island has very specific resilience problems, but so does everywhere else. Every region of the United States has their own challenges from a pers you know, they gotta keep the grid up somehow, and what they can learn from Hawaii is, is a lot. Well, when you are literally in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles from anything, then resilience is, is all the more important because you're, you can't get what you need when things go south. If all of your fuel's coming in by ship and the ports are washed out or otherwise uh, inaccessible, um, that's a problem in terms of keeping the lights on and, and now you have to airlift things. Now, that you, that's just not possible. So resilient and energy, uh, resilient fuels, um, microgrids was a big topic of conversation here. Um, and learning from, uh, I, I had a great session, and, and I, as you say, you're going to work on some of this, uh, maybe we'll visit this again next, in next week's uh, episode, with uh, people who had worked on Sandy, Hurricane Sandy recovery and the Puerto Rico, uh, uh, Maria recovery, even 9-11, people who really understand that what it needs to keep things going and what the lessons were from having failed to do that sufficiently in the past. But, you know, it's one thing if you're, in, in the mid-Atlantic New York area or even in, in Florida, but being out here is very, very different in terms of the time and logistics uh, that it takes just to bring help. It's, I mean, even, even Puerto Rico is so much closer to the mainland than Hawaii. In addition to resilience, Heather, the, the other topic I thought that was pervasive was collaboration. And in some ways that's what Verge is about, not just Verge Hawaii, but Verge is about big companies, little companies, cities, utilities, and others working together for some of these solutions. But Hawaii has these big mandates, these audacious goals, and it, it, they're, they're only gonna happen when parties come together and really pool their, their knowledge and resources and, and have an open conversation. And so that kept coming up this week as well it should. And it was really sort of refreshing to see, I think over the, the three years we've been doing this event here in Honolulu, that conversation has become richer and it's not just we should collaborate, let's try to do that. It's more, how can we collaborate better? Mm -hmm. And I, I, that feels like progress. What did you, you think? Well, certainly it was, a th and we'll get into this in a moment, um, it was a theme of the Sustainable Tourism Summit, right? How does the hospitality sector inspire local food systems, right? Encourage local farms, encourage the development of local products and so forth. Um, and it, or to, to take a completely different example, what signals does the, the uh, biofuels industry here in, in Hawaii need from, from companies to, to change its practices? Right now, a lot of the, the waste that's collected and, and, quote, recycled is burned, right? So there's a lot of burning on the island, uh, like as in many islands. Waste to energy burns, so it, at least to turn it into yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly, but... Is there a better way? Is waste to energy okay? And it is right now. I mean, it's one of those. It's one of those examples of, of you do what you can, right? Even if you, if even if it's not the cleanest thing or the best thing or the the thing you want to ultimately do, getting there, moving there is important. So anyway, how do you take that industry and evolve it to, for example, support? Airlines, biofuels, uh, aviation, and and, and the <laughs> the airlines that fly to Hawaii are very specific, um, uh, they're very specific problems. They, they, you know, it's hard to, to replace, it's hard to make a plane electric. It's just not gonna happen for a while. It's, it'll make a plane very heavy. Mm. Um, but how do you adapt that 
that infrastructure here on the island to support biofuels. So, so yes, uh, so collaboration, private to public, big to small is, uh, is always a great theme. And it's actually, I mean, it's part of the solutions. And that's what Verge is about, generally speaking, is what solutions get us there. And it always takes collaboration, always, always. And on the biofuels front, we had United Airlines here in force uh, talking about some of the work they're doing and, and in California at LAX around uh, turning uh, both algae on, one, on the one hand and municipal solid waste into fuels that are being put into, the, into their airplanes in small amounts, but, but still uh, increasingly significant. And United is the largest carrier from the mainland into Hawaii, so it really has a significant presence here. And it's looking at you know, how do we how do we expand that, and what's the opportunity? Because, you know, in a world of circular economy, we're just trying to keep the molecules in play, as we like to say. Burning trash isn't the best use, highest and best use of some of those materials. And so, one of the questions about you know, uh, and circular economy is not part of the conversation here in Hawaii. They don't really talk about that. And so uh, it's just interesting to see how uh, a region that is uh, so uh, ecologically sensitive, environmentally aware, and you know, particularly in harm's way with, with climate change, and has taken such bold steps on the energy front, is sort of behind the ball a little bit uh, on the solid waste front. And again, being an island, there, there being no a way to throw things, um, they've, they've got to start rethinking that. So I, there's a lot of places, uh, you know, not, not to diminish the leadership we're, we've seen here, and we had the governor and uh, Senate majority leader and, and one of the leading uh, state uh, assemblymen, um, you know, and, and, and all the members of the Public Utilities Commission here in Hawaii, at, here at Verge, great leadership, but they've still got a long way to go. Well, let's get into the Week in Review. So, so many different stories and things to choose from. Let, but let's start at the top with Governor Ige, David Ige, the governor of the state of Hawaii. He's uh, finishing out a term running for re-election. It's unclear what direction that's going to go. But he continues to, to hold the vision as he's been to all of our, all three of our Verge uh, Hawaii conferences. Uh, what struck you about what he talked about this time, Heather? So he was incredibly articulate. Uh, I, I really enjoyed the interview that our friend Don Lippert did with him. Uh, Don from Elemental Accelerator, one of our great partners here in Hawaii. And I think what his uh, perspective on this was how agile and how flexible <laughs> the government needs to be. And I think that was sort of the learning that he has for other places, which is to say that governments at the civic and state level need to, number one, listen more, like to the point you made earlier, find out where the mistakes were, let people try things, put the budgets in place to support them and so forth. And so we, we, uh, we had some coverage of that, that uh, topic. Um, he was part of a, a session with uh, Josh Stambro, who again, we'll hear from in a, in a moment. And jo Josh is the Chief Resilience and Sustainability Officer for Honolulu, the county and city. But what struck me, um, the, the perspective that D Governor David Ige had was really how all of these, uh, his recognition of how everything needs to come into place, how once you put these uh, mandates or policies in place, you need to actually make sure the budget's there and how he went about doing that in, in Hawaii. So here's some perspective from David Ige from the main stage conversation on how governments need to listen and then be flexible. If you are thinking about how to transform or heal our community as we move to the next level, it really is not something that happens overnight. And, and clearly because of that need for focused, continuous efforts, you know, putting these goals in legislation of some sort, I think really helps the community to really understand and then make, make decisions as we go along about why it's important and, and why, it's, uh, why we need to move forward together. So, um, you know, I do think that we, this process that started 10 years ago to be audacious and, and really commit to a different kind of energy, a different kind of economic, a really a different community um, that started 10 years ago. I think we're getting 10 years into the program. We are starting to talk about the next set of goals, uh, really moving, I think, from um, energy to carbon, I think, is really the appropriate uh, next step, as you know, we passed in this session 
a commitment to carbon neutral neutrality uh, by 2045. You know, again, I think that that really demonstrates that it's more than just electricity. It really is about the entire energy ecosystem. Uh, and I think that really um, that I, once again, it was unanimous uh, support from the legislature. Once again, I think the community gets it that that really is the natural evolution of that goal. It's about being totally carbon neutral in everything that we do. You know, we have began, begun to incorporate all of the actions of state government to really focus the entire budgeting process to make sure that uh, every department is looking at these long-term goals and objectives and beginning to integrate and into everything that they do Budget priorities, I, I think, are a reflection of the broader goals that we're all committed to. I know that you've heard um, our Department of Transportation talk about you know, the bigger vision of if you truly embrace this transformation, what does that mean for each and every department? And then it gets integrated into the goals and objectives of each and every department. Uh, and then the budgets begin to reflect as we build budgets at both the state and the city level are beginning to marshal the resources to really move these systems forward. And I do think it's about um, not only having the goals, but about measurement. You know, I came from um, Hawaii Island this morning and um, following me in that presentation, uh, was Celeste Connors and talking about the Aloha Plus Challenge as a way to publicly not only announce the goals, but then begin measurements. You know, and it's those kinds of efforts, I think, that need to follow so that, you know, these goals were set by the entire community. As I said, they were embraced by everyone. Uh, and so everyone needs to be able to see where we are and what progress we've made and they can think about what action they can take to really advance the goals. One of the pieces that we ran this week, I think was really excited about, uh, partly because it's written by someone who has not been writing for us much, and we've been anxiously getting, waiting for him to uh, start contributing. Paul Karp, our Green Biz Director of Research and Senior Analyst, um, who spends his days busily uh, building out the energy part of the Verge conference that's coming up in October, as well as heading up the research division of projects we do with other companies. So he's been busy, and we, find, we got him to do a piece about how the business community is responding and, and, really, and how the public-private sector is coming together to create the conditions for clean energy to uh, thrive here in the islands uh, and to create the, the, the kinds of technologies, the kinds of incentives, and the strategy, again, back to collaboration. It's a whole grid modernization strategy and a number of other strategies coming into place uh, with the utilities, the regulators, the entrepreneurs, uh, the legislature, and, and so on. So collaboration seems to be uh, taking shape here. Yeah, right. So, but the, the the theme more specifically is the all the different microgrids um, that are popping up all over the islands, and the great examples of what's happening now in Kauai and also on the Big Island, where you've had some very significant problems. Um, on in Kauai, for example, the flooding that took out different parts of the grid, and as you evolve to a, a grid, grid that is more distributed and more but at the same time orchestrated. So you can, you can use resources together, but you can also isolate them if something profoundly bad happens um, and may, make sure that it doesn't uh, ripple. <laughs> I'll give, I always give the examples of the north, Northeast. When something goes down on the grid, it takes a lot of things with it. And how do you get to a place where you can isolate and, get, and, and make sure that the, the problem is, is, is more discreet? So, Hawaii is doing a lot of work in that area. The, um, the Public Utilities Commission is working, well, I mean, they're coming, they're putting together the groundwork. They're laying the groundwork. They're, they're, uh, there's so many different policies coming into, pl into place, including the, the very important performance-based rate-making uh, policies that they're, they're now putting in place, where, which will really make, make it more palatable for the Hawaiian Electric Company to invest in these sorts of smart technologies and smart grid orchestration methods that allow you to, to put these things together. And it's important to keep in mind that this isn't just about, let's say, hurricanes or even volcanoes mm -hmm. coming in, that, that sea level rise is going to really hit 
Hawaii hard, uh, primarily because most of its critical infrastructure, its uh, power plants, wastewater treatment plants, uh, its government buildings, even its schools, are right on the coast. And so uh, one of the, I think, remarkable things that the state has done came out of the legislature and was signed, uh, I think, last week or very recently, a, a piece of uh, policy that said we need to, first of all, map um, all of uh, the sea level rise for, for the islands and then start to make decisions. Now that we know that at, at one foot, uh, this is what's going to happen in, let's say, Waikiki or Oahu or anywhere, uh, and this is what it's going to look like in terms of inundation at, at, at one meter. Now that we know that, how can we not prepare for that? And, uh, and preparing for that means moving power plants, moving wastewater treatment plants, moving government buildings, and not to mention all the roads and other infrastructure that goes along with that to higher ground. And, and that begets all these other issues of you know just getting the building permits, which can take years and years, the NIMBY issues, I don't want a wastewater treatment plant in my backyard, all of those kinds of things. So it's an incredibly complex uh, set of affairs, and, 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 and it's also a microcosm of what the rest of the United States, not to mention the rest of the world, will be seeing along their coastlines uh, for the decades to come um, on how Hawaii prepares and how much it prepares. Uh, is really going to determine um, a, a lot of, of its survival in, in, in the Pacific over the next uh, century. And then the final piece of that we're going to tout this week is the carbon neutrality uh, legislation that, that the, the state just put in place. And this is a, a de- declaration that the state will be carbon neutral by 2045. Okay, wow, but how do you get there? So at also, they have put into place uh, legislation to in, inspire a, the development of a carbon offset marketplace here in, in the state. And now no one really knows what that looks like. Right now they're talking a lot about you know, planting trees and, and so forth. But the system's in place now to allow the, the state to go out and, and do its research. You know, does it want to be part of the carbon the cap-and-trade market in California. Could it somehow be a partner of California? Could it be a partner of other places, Washington State? The, the state is now talking to um, both of those places. Um, they're looking at what's going on in the Northeast with the, the cap-and-trade um, system there as well. And we, we had a session, uh, and I actually was able to moderate a session on that topic at the conference and uh, recognize a very important piece of, of what it you need. It's another element of the the push to 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 do the clean energy transition to do it faster and so forth so and there's so many amazing policies coming out here and how they adapt and evolve i think is uh so so much that others can learn from what i was impressed by is how the state and the utilities and all the different partners aren't trying to sugarcoat this mm-hmm. um first of all they the, the state is a is a policy that that acknowledges Climate change is 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 happening. It's happening fast, and it could be uh, existential for Hawaii. So, let's acknowledge that number one. And now that we've acknowledged that, let's talk about all that needs to happen. The, you know, the infrastructure moving, and the the new kinds of policies, and and also talk about the fact that it's going to take money to do this. And so, how do we do that? Do we, you know, tax roads or fuels, or do we tax uh, tourists or not? Or you know, and and how do we make that equitable so that we're not it, does, it isn't just for the people living on the coast who tend to be a higher income versus the people inland who are uh, often the people who work in the hotels and, 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 and all of that. So I love the fact that it's an open conversation. It may, you know, they may argue that we need more people at the table, that we're not talking as, to each other as clearly, and, and, and that's one of the reasons they invited us over a few years ago to do this Verge conference, to bring everyone together in the room. But, you know, relative to the conversations taking place uh, in most other parts of, of the United States, at least, it's refreshing. Mm-hmm. The, uh, I recognize the sugarcoating <coughs> comment on the carbon uh, stuff, especially because I'll note that, yes, they put this legislation in place, but they also shot down the carbon tax proposal. Um, And here on the islands, one of the very real problems or or challenges is they want to inspire more local food growth, so more produce, more... And if you're planting trees instead on that arable land, you know, how do you balance the needs to have a a more healthy uh, local food system versus the, you know, so what is that carbon marketplace look like? Who's in, who needs to be there? Is it, certainly they're already engaging with the agricultural community, but 
The business community needs to be in, engaged as well. What are they already paying? What do they will? What are they willing to pay? What will that look like? And in, in a way, you know, how can they shape it in a way that will will be economically um, palatable for the business community? So yeah, definitely a lot of things that need to happen, but the will is there. We talked a lot this week in Honolulu about resiliency, and here to talk about that is Josh Stanbro, who is the Chief Resilience Officer for the City of Honolulu and Executive Director of the Office of Climate Change, Sustainability, and Resiliency. Josh, first of all, what does resiliency mean for Honolulu? You know, resiliency is really the ability to survive, adapt, and grow no matter what shocks and stresses come our way. And it's on an island. There's a lot of shocks and stresses that we have to kind of keep account of. Um, you know, we saw what happened in Puerto Rico. Um, we know that that could very easily uh, be us and, the, and those, that shock sort of value of a hurricane. Um, we got flooding, um, you know, just a, a week ago. Uh, Kauai, our sister um, island, had 50 inches of rain in 24 hours. That's a record that nobody else has ever even seen um, in the U.S. And so we know that climate change is basically putting our hazards um, on steroids. But there's also the, the sort of the long-term stresses. So there's the sea level rise for sure. But when you're in an island, um, you know, we've got these energy issues. We're importing our, our energy. And that's really what we're here at, at Verge about is that long-term bleed of capital out of our island economy that really stresses our citizens, increases cost of living. Um, and we need to get that down. I imagine one of the things that is required for a resilient anything, but certainly in Honolulu, is, is the social fabric. Because when the stuff hits the fan, uh, it's about uh, can people pull together? How much of that is part of your portfolio? And what do you see uh, happening there? What do you see uh, that's needed to be done? Well, it's a huge part of what we're looking at. Um, you know, so community is resiliency. Um, anytime there's any sort of community stress, the quicker and the better that people are able to pull together, the easier it's going to be. I mean, the beautiful thing about designing a new energy infrastructure around sustainable, renewable, locally-based sources is it actually builds community while you're doing it. Right now, we're importing oil. We're paying somebody else from far away, sending in their oil. We barely see it. But when you build an, an, an ecosystem around renewable energy, those solar panels are on your neighbor's roof. That battery storage is you know, decentralized in, in neighborhoods. Um, there's local jobs that are created with that that keeps that money on island and when you encounter you know a big shock if you've got a microgrid and you've got that that energy being generated locally you get to collaborate with your neighbors go over to somebody's house who has you know battery backup and storage um, you know hopefully keep your stuff into the fridge in, in their refrigerator uh, to weather the storm if they've got battery backup or they've got um, solar so this is really a community building exercise as much as it is an economic development exercise to make sure we're 100% renewable by 2045. So do the citizens of Honolulu understand what resiliency means? If you were to walk out of the Hilton Hawaiian Village a few blocks into Waikiki and said, what does it mean? Uh, would people get it? You know, I think so. Island communities... I think in their DNA, know what it's like to be vulnerable and they know what it's like to have to thrive um, and succeed against uh, tough odds, right? I mean, we're, we're a long ways away um, and we know that grit and resilience is part of, um, you know, sort of making our way and adapting to change. I mean, if you look at islands, I mean, where did Darwin discover, uh, you know, sort of evolution, right? On an island in the Galapagos, he saw that, that, that quick innovation, that quick pace of um, you know, adaptive radiation. And you see that with people in islands as well, right? So we, we get to iterate and, and, and change quickly, I think, um, in an island space. I think part of the reason that our office got established by voters in 2016 by a 17-point margin is people um, in islands don't tend to move around a lot. They, so they have a baseline of knowledge from when they were a kid, and they've seen that change in terms of climate. They've seen that change in terms of natural hazards. So they know that things are different, and they know that they wanted to address it. And I think, you, you know, even if you went and somebody asked somebody to define resiliency, they may not be able to tell you the, the, the dictionary version. But when we went to the polls and said, Said, define whether we should have an office focused on resiliency and climate change and sustainability, everybody on this island raised their hand and said yes. And so uh, we know that people in their hearts know um, things are changing and we need to do things differently. Who does Honolulu look to for inspiration? We look everywhere. Um, we are agnostic about where we can rip off and get good ideas. Um, you know, I think 
the one problem that we have is scale sometimes. You know, we have a small population here, um, and so some things aren't going to work here uh, because of scale that may work other places. But we'll look anywhere. I mean, we look at, at the way that, you know, New York, really post-Sandy, developed long-term recovery plans. We know we need to, we need to have that, and we need to, to bring those on. We're looking to Miami and the beaches right now. They're elevating their roads. How much is that costing them? How are they doing it alongside businesses that suddenly find themselves below grade? Um, you know, and so we're looking at what other cities are doing, um, what other nations are doing. You look at, you know, um, uh, I, I talked about WIM in Helsinki, uh, uh, you know, on the, on the panel. People are innovating around transportation as a service instead of just a pure car-based economy. We're not there yet. I mean, we, we have some great, aspirations. We have some great homegrown resources. We have amazing potential here in Hawaii, and we've got great leadership. Um, but the technical solutions, the structures, the technology, the projects, those are being developed all over the world. We're really lucky to be part of the 100 Resilient Cities Network, um, founded and sponsored by the Rockefeller Foundation. So they picked 100 cities across the globe um, to really kick you know the tires on the idea of resiliency and so we're able to share through that network what these other cities that are looking out over the horizon and adopting new policies what works what doesn't after they innovate they can send their good ideas here well keep getting those good ideas here it's really an inspiration to see all that you're doing and we really appreciate your hosting this event again this year so thanks so much josh stanbro is the chief resilience officer for the city of honolulu thanks josh thanks joel One of the members of our team that we have here this week in Hawaii is a senior writer and transportation analyst, Katie Fehrenbacher, to join us here in the studio. Hey, Katie. Aloha. Hi, Joel. Mahalo. That too. Yeah, <laughs> you're welcome. You were here, as you naturally would be, looking at the transportation side of that because that's one of the, the many parts of the Hawaii sustainability puzzle in terms of the commitments they've made. Um, And the question is, what's the progress they're making and and how's that going? So Hawaii has just started um, on this big transition to try to get to 100% clean renewables for ground transportation. So it's a very audacious goal. And um, one of the things that I've really noticed um, from Verge Hawaii this week is just looking at how that transformation for ground transportation is going to be a lot more difficult um, compared to the clean energy uh, transformation. And um, there's a lot fewer mechanisms in place to help Hawaii reach those goals. So a a lot of things we talked about this week were the challenges that um, the different sectors face. And this is just to be clear, all about electrification, uh, Dover electric vehicles, uh, not just cars, but but possibly buses and maybe even some some other vehicles? Or is it, I know there's a lot of things going on around biofuels and some other things. What what is, what are the ingredients of the transportation transformation? So the goal is just to get to renewable, uh, clean, renewable transportation. So they don't identify um, specifically how Hawaii needs to get there. But a lot of this is going to have to do with electrification. Um, So when we're looking at um, some of the commercial vehicles, the fleets, private and public fleets, a lot of that is going to be around electrification. Um, And I had a breakout session uh, where there was three of Hawaii's biggest fleet operators, um, and they were talking about uh, just how difficult it has been just starting the process of uh, purchasing some of these electric vehicles because, you know, so, uh, you know, a bus uh, might cost like $550,000, but an electric bus might be $700,000. $50,000. So they're trying to figure out, you know, how can they overcome those gaps um, when they don't have um, strong incentives and pricing available right now. I know we heard from Holmes Humble um, on that, and we'll play that clip in a minute. But you'd imagine, or I would imagine, that the electrification might be easier here for at least in terms of the fact that this is small islands and so range anxiety isn't as big of a deal so refueling you know every you know these vast networks as as say we have in California isn't the issue, or, or is that not what the discussion's about? Range anxiety isn't necessarily the issue, particularly for the commercial and fleet um, vehicles. I think the issue really is cost. Where is the money going to come from? Where is the financing going to come from? Um, so range is not, yeah, range is not a particularly 
a big issue for them right now. Um, but, you know, so Proterra, electric bus maker, was in the discussions um, yesterday as well. And, you know, they're trying to look at different financing options to provide to their customers. So there's leasing options. You can buy the batteries only. Um, so there's different, you know, third parties that can come in and finance some of these things. So there are starting to be some new different alternative ideas. It's just getting those ideas to the people who need to use them. So I know we have a couple of clips to queue up. Uh, tell us what we, some of the highlights that you wanted to share. So one thing that was really interesting was um, Amanda Eakin from NRDC was talking about these new um, pricing models that, that the LA County is using to look at uh, to reducing traffic congestion. Um, and so they're looking at ways that these real-time pricing mechanisms can get people to not drive during peak hours. So that was fascinating. Um, I'm glad that you spoke a bit about the idea of the rail as a utility because we've been having similar conversations about the transportation sector. And uh, there's a professor, Mike Manville, at UCLA we work with a lot, and he compares transportation to other utilities such as electricity and water, um, where in the case of energy, for example, in North America, we have something like 38 authorities, who's, they're called balancing authorities. Their job is to balance supply and demand every day in this very fine-tuned way so that we don't have blackouts. We don't come to expect blackouts as a daily occurrence. What he says is in the transportation sector, we just lack that kind of entity. And so what, we're, what we have every day is twice a day, our transportation system essentially fails. We have far too much supply for the limited demand of road space that we have, and therefore we all sit in this mind-numbing, maddening traffic congestion. Nobody likes to sit in traffic congestion. And so the idea of these pricing programs, or what we're calling in Los Angeles, where I'm doing some work, we're calling it a go zone, the idea of these pricing programs, it is really a supply and demand mechanism for managing this finite space. And the go zone concept, you would take a traffic hotspot, let's say it's downtown Honolulu or downtown Los Angeles, and you put together an integrated package of mobility solutions. So you'd have those rapid transit availability, transit available at five minute headways, so it's just the most convenient thing. You would of course have bus only lanes so the bus doesn't sit in all the traffic. You'd be able to have a, a faster trip on the bus. You'd look at creating safer streets for walking and biking, and you'd have, um, in addition to all these innovative mobility services, something called a decongestion fee. And essentially that is to manage the supply and demand of the road space. What that, what that decongestion fee does, um, as the Los Angeles Times put it when they editorialized in favor of this concept, is it makes people kind of pause and reconsider. Do I need to drive and do I need to drive right now? And you're talking about in some cases, in the case of Stockholm or London, it's about two to four dollars US. You're not talking about a lot of money. It's about the cost of a cup of coffee. But just the presence of that fee makes people consider, do I want to drive and do I want to drive right now? In those cases in London and Stockholm, just the presence of that very modest fee was enough to make 20% of drivers shift to something else, either shift to a different time of day, shift to taking transit, walking, biking, carpooling, telecommuting, whatever your choices are. In the case of London, that translated to 90,000 fewer vehicles driving into central London during the peak period and that transforms your city. So I know financing is another really tough issue, particularly when you're talking about the cost of some of these, these vehicles relative to the conventional counterparts. What's, what was going on there? So Holmes Hummel brought up a really interesting point of looking to the energy and utility sectors um, for ways to provide financing um, to try to electrify transportation. So bringing in some of these options of um, just leasing or, or purchasing the battery um, or, or providing these alternative third-party financing mechanisms to electrify um, transportation and, and particularly transit. So Holmes is a former DOE ex uh, executive who now runs a nonprofit called Clean Energy Works. Let's listen in on what she had to say. The energy transition is for everyone. And by focusing on clean transit, we're actually advancing and healing a clean energy solution that covers a clean energy divide. In fact, I think it's often lost on many people in the clean tech world that people who ride our clean transit systems are experts at shared mobility platforms. 
We need to put frontline communities at the front of the clean energy revolution in a way that benefits are broadly enjoyed. And here's where I think we can learn some lessons. See, now Hawaii's already made that choice to prioritize clean transit, and we're seeing proposals to make big investments in making the grid ready, but we still face big first cost barriers on the customer side of the meter. We've seen this playbook before, and dozens of utilities have already demonstrated solutions for investing on the customer side of the meter, recovering those costs without making loans or indebting customers, and actually improving the performance and adding value for the whole system. Now we have a similar option here with financing the onboard storage and the chargers that connect it to the grid in a way that adds value to the utility and accelerates our path to the goals that we know we need to bring into the future. I actually worked with three other organizing partners in another state to explore whether or not this would be possible with a transit agency that I'm going to call Lake City Transit. And I want to tell you this story because the results surprised us. Here you see the cost of one new clean transit bus above the cost of the status quo. It is essentially the cost of the battery and the charger together, and they asked us, could you help us get grant money to pay for it all? And we said, wow, that is going to be a lot of grant money. If we think we are going to provide grant money for the whole clean energy revolution, what if? What if we used the same play out of the playbook that I just described, and the utility was able to knock down the first cost barrier by capitalizing the cost-effective onboard storage in a way that actually delivered immediate net savings to the customer, including here the transit agency, and allowed that customer to have a path to ownership at the same time. So we're not considering expanding the monopoly or unduly squashing competition. So what should we be looking forward to in Hawaii in the next few years to see if they're making progress? So right now, some of the uh, to the transit authorities are testing out these electric buses, particularly around the airports, um, and they're figuring out in what ways the buses are working for them, if the technology is ripe and ready for them to use. And so we'll probably see the, the results of some of those tests next year. Great. We'll be looking for that down the road. Thank you, Katie Fehrenbacher. Thanks for having me. One of the elements of Verge Hawaii, which is an element of all of our Verge events, in fact, all of our events, period, was a summit that was held, a half-day event, um, invitation only, with a select number of the attendees here and a few people from outside the, the conference that we wanted to have at the table. And this one was on sustainable tourism. Uh, our dear friend, Sean Rappaport, was, uh, put that together and was unable to actually come to Hawaii because she's in recovery mode on a bike accident, as I know we've mentioned in past shows. And Heather Clancy right here and John Davies, our colleague, uh, stepped in to facilitate that. So Heather, give us a little flavor. What were you trying to address? What aspect of sustainable tourism? And, and what was the conversation like? So I'll just note that the summit itself was under the Chatham House rule, so I can't mention names, but I can mention some of the themes that came came out from the, the five-hour session that we had. It was my first summit. It was a really uh, inspiring group. I've been very inspired this week, apparently. <laughs> but um, the themes that came out, I mean, first of all, what is sustainable tourism? And that continues to be a conversation. Uh, the, the, the definition seems to be coalescing. Um, the, and the point of this particular summit was really to identify the metrics that would point to progress. So. What can we measure in the hospitality industry that will show us that we're making progress 
on this? What can we measure um, in terms of aviation, right? Aviation wasn't such a big part of this particular discussion, although United you know, has been at this conference. But aviation is important for getting people to Hawaii. United Airlines, and we also had the, the CEO of Hawaiian Airlines mm-hmm. on stage, I think a couple times. So yeah, the, we did actually get into some of those issues. So I actually will mention something from the Hawaiian Airlines um, conversation that was on the main stage because it was is something that I thought, wow, that was really interesting. So sustainability is a big challenge for them because of the just the very real problem of you can't fly a plane without fuel. So how do you, the, the thing that they have to do is make that fuel more sustainable. So biofuels is clearly the path that they're on right now. But Peter Ingram, the CEO of Hawaiian Airlines, mentioned this very interesting partnership. So if you think about it, Hawaiian Airlines is, is flying everyone intra-island, so from island to island, but also they have a lot of mainland flights coming, bringing people to Hawaii. And what is one of the things that, what, what is one of the reasons that, that tourists come to Hawaii? For the reefs, for the beaches, for the snorkeling, for the, you know, to look at the fish and so forth. So one of the relationships and collaborations that Hawaiian Airlines has made is with one of the companies that uh, specializes in reef-friendly sunscreen. So when you're on a Hawaiian flight now, you hear about the sunscreen, you're encouraged to use it. And to, so, you know, in its small way, that company is, is making a difference because, I mean, it's a very real problem. Um, people get in the water and, and you have to put sunscreen on, you don't want to burn, but it's really bad for the fish and for the reef, the creatures of the reef. So um, that was just for me like a, one small example of like, it seems like a small thing, but it's like really kind of profoundly big. <laughs> yeah. And of course, if those reefs go away or become diminished, then people are not going to want to fly that much. And so it, it, it very much is all mm-hmm. part of their, uh, let's call it enlightened self-interest with, with all due respect for the commitment that they've made. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that, yeah, exactly. Um, one of the things that that came out of the, the summit, as I said, was was we did identify a number of the metrics. The the, the, the folks here um, on island, they, the Aloha Plus Challenge um, dashboard, which the, the islands are trying to use to um, measure and map and, and declare how sustainable different elements, different industries are. One of the elements on that dashboard is sustainable tourism. So one of the points of the summit was to try to identify metrics such as energy efficiency at all the hotels, the electric vehicle charging infrastructure, for example, at hotels, and which airports have the best um, infrastructure, how many miles are being driven by EVs versus those being driven by fuel. So because obviously, clearly, when people come, they rent. How do you get to better water? You know, is there water water bottles in a hotel? How you need to drink water when you're in the sun, but how do you get? How do you take the fresh water and 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 so forth? So um, the the summit focused a lot on 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 that, and and as well, I think one of the interesting themes for me was the recognition that the hospitality companies and many of them are doing this already need to become much more closely aligned with uh, local products, right? So one of the big challenges for Hawaii is everything's be sh- lots of things have to be shipped in. You have to ship in the water supply, the water bottles. You have to ship in different food. Um, you have to ship in, again, all of these different supplies for those these big properties. So how does the hospitality industry get better aligned with local businesses, especially local food? What menus can they encourage? How can they encourage their guests to engage and want to buy those items and so forth? Um, and one of the, the people that's really working hard on that right now is Hilton. Um, and I wanted to uh, just cue up this clip from Daniela Foster. She's the uh, director of global uh, corporate responsibility for Hilton. She talked about how Hilton is really trying to inspire more local engagement and lo- local and you know local business with with suppliers. And we should note that Hilton was a sponsor of uh, Virtual Hawaii this year and. Um, uh, we also had this event at the Hilton Hawaiian Village, and so they've been a partner as well. But let's listen to Daniela. So you can buy local, for example. Um, buying local as you travel, you can also look to um, eat local. So what I mean by that is local sourcing is becoming more of a thing. So local menu options is something that we're prioritizing. So as part of our 2030 goals, we're committing to double our spend on local sourcing. And that means all of this, everything from local food and beverage offerings um, on through to, you know, local product offerings in um, on site at our property, 
employees on through to, you know, the local team members that we hire for our hotels, um, on through to local services. So all of that is, is part of it. Um, but as guests can also look at local experiences. So for example, we're partnering with an organization called visit.org and they provide local authentic, um, experiences and tours. And the beauty of this organization is that about 80% of the proceeds from your tour ticket actually go back into that local social enterprise. So it's all about catalyzing local growth. There's cool experiences like, you know, going to a sustainable farm, um, if you're into that sort of food and beverage piece, or, you know, um, taking a cooking class from a local refugee woman in Harlem, New York, for example. There's really cool experiences that they offer. They're unique, they're authentic, um, but they also go back into the economic growth of the local community, which I think is cool and important. So what came out of the summit? Was there uh, in product or uh, another, uh, any commitments or projects that are going to go forward? Uh, talk a little bit about you know, what the, how it all ended. So yeah, so in the, the second part of the afternoon, the groups kind of broke up to work on different challenges. So for example, how do you uh, inspire the education system in Hawaii to get the residents thinking more about sustainability at a young age. And then they might want to start businesses that are more sustainable and they might want to work for hotels or they can also go manage a hotel. So that was something that came up, you know, more local management of hotel properties instead of people from off island. So that was just one of the problems. We, the, the agricultural thing came up several times. How do you make sure that that there's not too many people going to different parks. How do you capacity plan? So those were some of the problems that we were working on. The takeaway was that the organization um, that is working on the Ohoho Plus dashboard is going to be taking some of the metrics that were suggested during the session, and they're going to be looking at how to incorporate incorporate them into the dashboard to collect the data um, and to express it out to the public, to um, tourists, potential tourists, and the, the... business community, the hospitality industry, and the airline industry was talking to them about how to provide more data that could be used. So it was, um, the takeaway is, let's get more data, let's get more data in real time, you know. Great. Well, uh, sustainable tourism is going places. Um, Kudos to you and to Shauna Rappaport for setting this up, for John Davies and you for facilitating, and um, we'll look forward to seeing what happens again next time. And that's our 350 podcast for this week, Aloha edition. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organization, stories and events we mentioned in this episode. While you're there, check out the link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. You can reach us by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. GreenBiz350's director is Stephanie Joyce. Elsa Wenzel is our managing editor. We'll be back on the mainland next week with another edition of GreenBiz350. Until then, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. <laughs>